You're listening to highlights from the One Planet podcast interview with Jill Heinerth, cave diver, underwater explorer, writer, photographer, and filmmaker. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. It's interesting because I'm an artist, citizen scientist. So I think of myself primarily as an artist, where many scientists that I work with are very pure applied scientists. And so when you are working for an academic institution, there's a very strict sort of chain of events and protocols for, you know, observation, research, writing, peer review, publication. It takes a long time. And at each step of the way, that pure applied scientist needs to be quite specific and careful with their language so they're not saying anything that can't be immediately and fully defended. Otherwise, they might harm their reputation. Where an artist is really encouraged to sort of paint and imagine and just throw crazy ideas out there and brainstorm. So we can't, like, we might say things that are like, oh my gosh, did you see that skull? It's got silver teeth on it. Gee, I wonder if they were hiding their valuables inside this, the skull, like, or whether that was a decorative application or whatever. Uh, so we could throw out these crazy ideas and the scientist is constantly going, whoa, 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 let's wait. We need to get evidence, research, blah, blah, blah. And so we kind of temper each other's in that yin-yang sort of way. But I would propose that the planet doesn't have time for some of that traditional science anymore. We need to put a little bit more effort into involving artists and citizen scientists in contributing to that data stream and the idea stream that can be synthesized into solving some of the greatest planet's issues right now, like water issues and climate change. So it, it's an interesting time where moving forward is going to require the most significant collaborations that humankind has ever embarked upon. It's all new new territory. There's a lot of times I embark on a project where I can do years of research and kind of pre-visualize what I think I'm going to see. And then I get there and it's like, wow, I wasn't expecting this. This is so different or new risks that we never even anticipated. And so there has to be kind of a process within a team or even in my own mind for reassessing risks and making decisions to move forward again. And certainly that's what someone in the military would experience on a day-to-day -day basis with new emerging threats all the time. Well, it's really interesting because you often have very specific objectives to achieve for a scientist, but when you've got as many dives as I do, you can't help but reflect and compare with other dives. And that causes you to notice things that others might just swim by. It's like, oh, this looks like something I've seen in another place. And that could be really important information. And one thing we always know is that the more you study some new phenomena, the more questions you get than answers. <laughs> like, and, and so you're constantly going, yeah, but what? But what if? But what, what if? it worked this way or what if it happened that way and then your project <laughs> expands you know one of the things i've been working on recently is canada's longest underwater cave system which is near where i live here near ottawa canada and inside that cave it's the densest amount of biological material that i've ever seen in a freshwater cave and it's mostly mussels like bivalves shells and i reached out to Canada's foremost malacologist. That's somebody that studies those types of animals. And he's not a cave diver, but he was blown away with what I was seeing. And for about three years now, I, I keep bringing him back data and doing more work. And we come up with more questions than answers about this really important community of filter feeding organisms that are cleaning not just the cave system, but the Ottawa River as well.
some climate scientists I work with are looking at Earth's past climate and what we find within the geology record underwater so that they have a sense of where the sea levels were at other times on the planet. But other scientists are working on more hydrology where it's like, where is the this particular watershed being fed by? Like, what is the recharge zone that leads to a spring or a river or a lake or whatever else? And so they might do dye tracing to find out where the different transmission paths are, but also science on, you know, water quality, like oxygen levels, uh, salinity, many different factors are important to understand, especially as they're changing and then causing a shift in the biology as a result. I think that we have sort of surpassed that the luxury of being able to say, no, we can't re-engineer biology. It's adaptation, right? And it's either going to happen naturally or we're going to help it along. And when you think of the planet today, like the proliferation of invasive species that are out competing native species, like we are kind of really intermingling the biology on this planet these days with the way we travel and move goods around. And so, yeah, I, I do think that engineering is going to be a part of the future end sustaining or maybe even reintroducing some recently extinct species, for instance. I don't know how far we'll go, like in terms of like the Jurassic Park thing, but but those kinds of ethical decisions need to be made, you know, globally, cooperatively. It's such a privilege sort of swimming through these places. And I almost feel like I'm getting a you know secret peek into the body of the planet. And that that's a very precious and almost a sacred kind of collaboration where I get to experience this, I get to see this. But if I'm going to take these insanely challenging risks, then I need to make it worthwhile and share what I've seen so that other people have the benefit of understanding that a better conception of our connected planet. I mean, both in the short term and in the sort of long term scale as well. The sense of time can be warped by what's going on in my brain. So I do have this dance between left brain and right brain, left brain, pragmatic, right brain, creative. So if I'm managing a complicated life support device while I'm shooting, you know, stills or video underwater, there's a dual thing going on. The creative side of my brain loses all track of time. Just as anyone that would ever sit down to paint or draw or even play on the computer, time is just gone. But that left side of the brain has to keep track of time and constantly be monitoring my, you know, life support status. So so there's a very present sense of time and forcing my brain back into keeping track of that. But these places that I swim through are timeless in the sense that many caves that I'm swimming through were like museums of natural history that inform us about things that happened in very ancient times on planet Earth. So I'm swimming through this temporal portal to have a peek at uh, ancient history. This is fascinating. And well, I mean, there's always interesting surprises and, and revelations. I suppose I'm still always surprised when we find evidence of human habitation or ceremonial activities like inside a cave that's now filled with water. But there's also other little wondrous things like in a cave in the Bahamas, I saw a bat that was beneath a layer of rock, calcite, but you could see through the clear calcite to see that a bat had once flown in that cave, died there, and then been slowly covered by layers and layers of rock. Or Sahara dust, like dust from the Sahara Desert in a cave in the Bahamas. So dust that traveled across the Atlantic, rained down on the surface, soaked into the ground, and then ended up in the substrate in a cave in the Bahamas. So there's always things that are kind of like 
wake me up and go, oh, wow, this is amazing. How did this happen? From inside an Antarctic iceberg, being the first person to cave dive there, I've, I've dived inside active volcanoes in the Canary Islands to underneath the Sahara Desert, in the Ural Mountains, in Russia, all over the planet. My next journey in a couple of weeks will be to go down to Micronesia to dive on World War II shipwrecks in Truk Lagoon, where the Japanese fleet was sunk in World War II. And then from there, I'm off to New Zealand, to the Poor Knights Islands, a, a very unique place where the currents from the Coral Sea bring very warm water tropical fish down into a much more temperate environment. So I've been so fortunate to dive in every ocean and continent on the planet. And yet there's still so many wonders that I have yet to experience. <laughs> and there were lots of things I was afraid of when I was a little kid. You know, I was afraid of the dark. I was afraid to go down the basement stairs because I had to go all the way down the basement stairs to reach the light switch before I could turn that on. And that was scary. And yet now I, I live most of my entire career in the dark <laughs> in places that would make people feel terrified and claustrophobic. So a lot of those young life experiences that I had, I actually turned into my superpowers. And I wanted to encourage children to know that anything they dream of, that they can make it come true with hard work and dedication. And that's what the Aquanaut's all about. Yeah. So you're kind of seeing big issues like climate change happening in real time right before you. And do you ever get like frustrated trying to explain to people that these things are happening? Yeah. You know, I talk all the time <laughs> to groups big and small, and I still get asked by people, do you believe in climate change. And I'm like, it's not a question of belief. It's science. It's happening. And although I might feel frustrated, I try to never communicate that frustration. I recognize that for whatever reason, one reason or another, someone just doesn't have the knowledge. So maybe it hasn't been taught in school. You know, maybe they've become subjected to the very strong voices of a political entity that has, you know, steered them away from believing <laughs> in climate change. And so I try to take people at wherever they are and try to just very carefully and without judgment share what I've seen and my experiences and try to gently guide them towards better information sources. Because we can't just be polarized. We can't just call each other names when we don't understand. We have to help people to understand, you know, put out a hand and hopefully, you know, bring them onto our side, onto a better understanding of the science of what's occurring. But I think that you have this other thing. What do you need going on a dive? What do we need to continue to have a healthy planet? And you bring that across. So I guess what's your message? Oh, gosh, I'm still an eternal optimist. It's normal to feel climate anxiety, water anxiety, like anxiety for the fact that the world and politics is moving so fast and in troubling directions. But I have to remain an optimist. I have to continue to think about solutions. And I do. And I think my, you know, ultimate message is just we need to find our connections again. You know, set down the social media, set down the devices and find the human connections with your neighbors and the connections for the water planet as well. But recognize that this is one living, breathing organism that contains us all. The planet's going to be just fine. 
it's whether humanity and the natural world are going to make it through our transgressions or not. But remain part of the solution and recognize that every small thing that you can do in a positive direction will contribute to solving some of these issues. So don't give up. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.